chapter 36, and in particular today, uh, we're going to be focusing on verses 25 to 28. Those, that passage that begins with the words of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Some of you maybe follow people on TV or social media who have a knack for picking out properties that are an absolute heap uh, worn out buildings, dated decor, neglected and rotting for years, but someone comes along and sorts it out. Someone has a talent for fixing the mess of these places. And each time they do that, as, as, as they get more and more of a reputation, they get more and more of a reputation for their gifts and for their ability to fix these kinds of places. Their name gets more and more respect. In fact, the bigger the mess, the more respected the name of the person who can deal with it and transform it. Well, the prophet Ezekiel was ministering at a time when God's people were in a mess in every possible way, physically, economically, and certainly spiritually. God had punished them for centuries of idolatry and sin by allowing invaders to overrun them, put many of them to death, and take several hundred more away to the foreign land of Babylon. And as the pagan nations around Israel watched on and saw the mess God's people were in, they were thinking to themselves, well, what a pathetic God these people must have. He can't protect them. He can't look after the land that he gave to them. Look how easy it was for them to be defeated. Because of God's people's mess, God's name was being mocked. Look at chapter 36 and verse 21. God says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. What God's saying there, friends, is that, uh, that the, the rescue that he is about to bring about for his people, uh, the, the fact that he is about to gather them back into their land, the fact that he is about to restore to them all that they had lost, it's not because their sin really wasn't that bad. It's not, uh, it's not because they've earned it in any way. It is simply because God has concern for his own holy name. God's reputation is on the line. People are asking, is he a God who can save his people or not? Is he a God who will keep his promises or not? The answer, of course, is that God is perfectly capable of doing those things. The bigger the mess his people are in, the greater the glory that ultimately goes to God for the rescue, the restoration that he provides. And to be a Christian and to be part of the church is to have God's name upon us. It's to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, the work that he has provided for us, despite the mess we've made. And the passage that we have here, friends, in Ezekiel 36, whilst it applied to the exiles in 600 odd BC, it also is a wonderful picture for us today of the salvation that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. And so let's think first of all today about the God who cleanses his people. The God who cleanses 
his people. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. When you read through First and Second Kings, and also the prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, you see very clearly how idolatrous God's people had been, how sinful they had been. You can read in the book of, of First and Second Kings, for example, how God's people were prone to worshipping Baal or the Baals, these false foreign gods that people like Queen Jezebel had brought into the land, or they would go and, and make and worship using these Asherah poles that you, you read about in the Old Testament. And both those idolatrous forms of worship were really just no more than excuses, really, for sexual immorality. In Ezekiel chapter 8, God gives Ezekiel a vision and shows him what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem, the place where holy worship of God was supposed to take place. And Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 12 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? each in his room of pictures. God shows Ezekiel that the elders, the, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, are, are worshipping in idolatrous ways. They are, they are using images. The Ten Commandments expressly forbade this, of course. They're using little carvings and scratchings on the walls as their gods. And they're doing it, in some cases, right in the heart of the Jerusalem temple. And the early chapters of Ezekiel go into great detail about the idolatry, the disobedience, the immorality of God's people. All of which, of course, had caused the exile. The exile was punishment from God for all those sins. And one of the most important pictures that God gave to his people in the Old Testament to help them understand the seriousness of their sin was the picture of clean and unclean pure and, imp and impure. The people's sin, their idolatry, God said, it was like being covered in dirt and needing washed and cleansed. Even the priests in the Old Testament, they couldn't come before God without thoroughly washing themselves, preparing themselves to come into the presence of God. At Numbers 19, for example, describes one of the many, sac <coughs> one of the many sacrifices that the priests would have to make for God's people, which involved slaughtering a bull and then sprinkling its blood on the altar and on the side of the tent of meeting uh, as a sacrifice for the people's sin, covering over the people's sin. And after the priests had slaughtered the animal and sprinkled the blood, Numbers 19.7 says, Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp but the priest shall be unclean until evening. And that's just one example, friends. There, this is the pattern all through the Old Testament law. Virtually every sacrifice, every major act of worship, when the priest would come into God's presence representing God's people, uh, they never just casually dandered into God's presence or into the, the tent or the temple. They had to be washed they had to be cleansed, first through 
the sprinkling, sprinkling of the blood, and then through the water. And this would be repeated over and over and over again, year after year after year. The question then is, well, what's changed? Because here today there will be no sprinkling of blood and there are no priests who have to wash themselves before they lead us in worship. And so what has changed? Well, what's changed, of course, is that Jesus Christ has provided his perfect blood for us in sacrifice on the cross. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says that it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. That's why it had to keep being repeated year after year, month after month. Uh, the, the, the washings, the sacrifices, the incense, the robes, uh, the feasts, all of it. It had to keep being repeated time after time. Throwing the blood, washing the clothes and all these things. But now Jesus Christ has offered his body and his blood once for all. Hebrews 10.10. So it never needs to be repeated. And the sprinkled water of baptism, friends, is a picture of the cleansing that comes about through Jesus Christ. Baptism simply means washing. Baptism is something that Jesus Christ has commanded his church to be doing. We read that command earlier in Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. The name of the same God who spoke here through Ezekiel, promising to cleanse his people he has fulfilled that promise, friends, through the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And water baptism, which we will administer, uh, God willing, shortly to Benjamin, is a sign and a seal of the work that God alone does for us. His name still today gets all the glory. Notice the emphasis here in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five, and all through the passage on the fact that God is the one who is going to do these things. The only thing that the people have contributed here is the mess of their sin. God is the one who's going to fix it. I will, he says, I will, I will. And that's what God says to us, friends, through the outward sign of water baptism. Whether it's administered to an adult who has professed faith or to a little infant child of believers, the message of baptism is the same. God needs to do something for this person that they cannot do for themselves. He needs to do something for everyone watching on at a baptism that we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, Ian Duguid in his commentary on Ezekiel says, Baptism is not so much a testimony to quote my decision for Jesus as an act of wondered faith that Jesus has decided for me. I think that's really helpful uh, because in some cases today that, that very much is the, is the belief about baptism. It's a, it's a declaration that I have decided for Jesus. No, Duguid says baptism is all about the fact that God has decided to save us. When someone is baptized, it's not about them choosing God. We by nature cannot choose God. It's about what God can do and must do. I will cleanse you from all your uncleannesses and all your idols. 
That's what Benjamin O'Brien needs God to do for him and for his brothers and sisters. That's what all our covenant children and each adult man and woman here today needs God to do for us, to cleanse us. Because we too, friends, have our idols and our sin. Maybe not some of the, the idols that God's people had that Ezekiel was rebuking them for, but we have idols nonetheless. We have sinful natures nonetheless. God told Ezekiel that his people were looking at pictures in darkened rooms and those pictures were their idols. And how much, of, how much has the world not really changed at all today? We, we still have pictures, images, ideas, desires that function for many of us at times as our gods, as our idols, and certainly for those round about us in the world today. And it is only God who can cleanse us from the sin of idolatry and from the sin of all, from all kinds of other sin as well. No amount of water will cleanse us. Water is just a picture of the spiritual cleansing that needs done in our hearts through the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelation 7:14, in a scene describing all believers gathered in heaven, that describes all believers this way. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ, friends, is unique. No other blood washes. I wouldn't think you're going to find anyone suggesting that if you need to remove a stain from something, that you use blood. But the blood of Jesus Christ is unique. It completely removes the stain of sin upon our lives. And so water baptism is an outward sign of what needs to happen on the inside of each one of us. It's a picture of what God alone can and must do for us through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who cleanses his people. Secondly, this passage tells us about the God who provides power for his people. The God who provides power for his people. Having cleansed us, look what, what else God promises to do. Verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Boys and girls, apologies if you didn't get your sheet this morning. Don't know if the if they've been given out or not, but that's the verse on the, on, the sh- on the sheet for the boys and girls today. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. See, friends, more, that, more is needed in our lives than only the cleansing of sin. That cleansing is crucial. That cleansing is necessary. But more than that is needed if God is to bring about the ultimate promise from the beginning that he had made to his people, that he can dwell with us and that we can be with him forever. Ever since the days of Eden before the fall, the whole purpose of human existence was that we would be able to dwell with God, that we would know him, that we would love him, that we would enjoy him in the fullest sense. The closest human relationships we have with one another are all about those things, aren't they? Your best friends, your your parents, your children, your spouse, you simply enjoy being with them. You enjoy being in their presence. And for that to happen between God and his people, 
Not only did they need the guilt of sin washed away, but they needed new hearts with new power so that we would want to walk in God's ways, obey God's commands, instead of walking in the way of sin. And by nature, we are powerless to obey God's commands, powerless to resist sin. We are naturally bent and inclined towards disobedience of God. And so God, through Ezekiel, says that he is going to perform heart surgery on his people. He's going to invigorate them, revive them with new power. Look what he says again, verse, 20, uh, verse 26. I will put my, or verse 27, sorry. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, friends, all the failings of God's people in the Old Testament era just go to prove how radically and powerfully God had to act to change sinners. Nothing less than the power of God's Spirit himself would be needed in the hearts of God's people to keep them walking in obedience, to keep them uh, walking with God. A measure of power would be needed that they had never experienced before, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that believers in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit at all. Uh, in some measure, at least, they did. Uh, David says in Psalm 51:11, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so David and, and every other believer in the Old Testament did have a measure of, of power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what God is saying through Ezekiel is that a time will come when they will have a far greater measure of the Spirit than they have ever had before. A time will come when God will pour out his spirit powerfully and dramatically upon all his people so that they can live lives of obedience and holiness to him. And the New Testament tells us about when that time came, how the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church at Pentecost after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And at the end of his Pentecost sermon, you remember Peter says, Acts 2 verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the help of the Holy Spirit that you need to live a life of obedience to God. The first sign that someone truly has the Holy Spirit empowering their lives is that they cry out in forgiveness of sin for the very first time repenting of sin but then they will keep on repenting of sin Martin Luther said that the Christian life is one of continual repentance and they will keep on becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ day after day year after year afterwards by the power that the Spirit gives we thought about this in some measure last week Paul says in Galatians 5:16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul saying there is power available to you to walk, to live in the way that God has commanded and not to simply gratify sinful desires. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a Christian today, God has performed heart surgery on you. He has taken out of you what was a dead, cold, fossilized old heart 
And he has replaced it with a heart beating strong, strongly and regularly with the power of the Holy Spirit. Or like a doctor sending shocks of electricity into a nearly lifeless body, God has sent power surging, surging through your heart and soul so that more and more you are inclined to walk in the ways that he has commanded to live a life of holiness and godliness and service to him. Dear Christian, you will make it to the end. You will ultimately defeat sin and you can be a witness to unbelievers and you can get victory over your temptations each day all by the power that the Holy Spirit supplies. If you're not a Christian today, do what Peter summoned the people to do at Pentecost. Repent. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you might think, Pastor, you don't know just how filthy I am. You don't know the awful things I have done, looked at, said. If you did, you would know there's no amount of washing, no amount of power that can save me. But dear friend, you're wrong. Look what God, the all-knowing God, the all-powerful God, the God who has created you and who knows you perfectly. Look what he says again, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, all your sins. There is no asterisk there. There is no fine print. There is no get-out clause all your sins, no matter how scandalous, no matter how filthy you feel because of them, they are washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. In the last few weeks here in Northern Ireland, uh, I don't think the, the government in the Republic of Ireland has done the same thing, but uh, in Northern Ireland our government has given us all an entirely free gift, £100 to spend in the shops. All we have to do is ask and it will be given to us, this little card, and we will have the power in our hands to spend £100 without it ever coming out of our bank account. But there are some places where the card doesn't apply. It can only be used in certain shops or businesses, not all. Its power, in a sense, is limited. That's not the case, friends, with the power of the Holy Spirit. In the life of the person who cries out for forgiveness of sins. There is no sin that you're struggling with today that is too much for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse. For the power of the Holy Spirit to defeat. There is no task that God is calling you to do in the church or in, a, in a, any other area of your life. That the Holy Spirit cannot give you enough power to perform. Repent and be baptised. And you will receive the gift, the power of the Holy Spirit. A heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. A mind and a heart set on obedience and life instead of disobedience and death. This is what God does for his people. He is the God who provides cleansing for his people. He is the God who provides power for his people. And then thirdly and finally and more briefly, he is the God who wants to dwell with his people. The God who wants to dwell with his people. Look at verse 28. 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And that last phrase, friends, is really the the heart of the covenant promises of God, that he dwells with us, and we dwell with him forever. As I said earlier, that's what the Garden of Eden was really supposed to be all about, a sanctuary, a a dwelling place on the earth for the creator God and his creative people. And in fact, God mentions the Garden of Eden a little bit further down. Ezekiel 36, verse 35. Look what he says. Verse 35. The land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. That's what the people are eventually going to say about the dwelling place of God. It's a new Eden. It's a garden city. It's a beautiful place to be. The question again, though, is when did all this happen? This cleansing, this coming of the Holy Spirit and God's people dwelling in a perfect place with their God. Where? When? How? Well, the answer begins to arrive, friends, when we open up the New Testament and read the words of John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ coming into this world, friends, was God in human flesh, coming to dwell, to be with his people, coming to provide that cleansing through his blood for our sins, and then leaving us with the power of the Holy Spirit. And having come once and then ascended back into heaven, friends, Jesus Christ will one day come again to judge the living and the dead, to dwell with us forever, to make this world new. Revelation 21 verse 3, describing the new Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down out of heaven and onto a new earth, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's when the promise God makes here through Ezekiel and all through the Bible will ultimately be fulfilled. This is what God will do for the sake of his own great name. He has already sent his son whose sacrifice on the cross cleanses us from the guilt of our sin. He has already sent his spirit on the church and will send his spirit for those who need his power to live in obedience to his word. And he will, friends, in the end, create a new world, a city and a garden in which we dwell with God forever. This is a promise for us and for our children. Do you believe this promise today? Do you need the cleansing power of Christ's blood today, the enabling power of Christ's spirit today? If you do, he is all too ready to give them for the sake of his own great and glorious name. I will sprinkle clean water in you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Amen.